Let's be honest, few humans enjoy meetings and many feel trapped in meetings. As leaders, we don't want to burden those we lead, but meetings can seem to do that more often than not. We wanted to address the pain of meetings through the Meetings with Saints Library. Here we have 15 plus presentations dedicated to improving the meetings we run. We have experts in the field addressing topics like getting people involved in meetings, staying on task, dealing with conflict in meetings, and a ton more. We'd love you to explore the full Meetings with Saints library over 14 days at no cost to you. You can do this by visiting leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. We'll also give you access to all of our virtual libraries that educate about other leadership topics. It's really good stuff. So visit leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. All right, let's go around the room, do some introductions. I'll start. So my name is Kurt Frankham. I am the executive director of Leading Saints, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And we are dedicated, you know, have a mission here to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, me personally, I live in Stansbury Park, Utah, which is in Tooele County. I grew up in West Valley City and I've been running Leading Saints really since 2010 when it started out as a hobby blog. 2014 is when the podcast started and now we are over 10 million downloads. And uh, man, we're glad that you are now one of those downloads. Let's jump in. Professor Casey Paul Griffiths, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast again. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I always enjoy our conversations. I mean, when I talk with uh, BYU professors, it's like, you know, they've, uh, it's like talking to Google. You know, you can ask them anything and they've always got an answer. So no pressure. <laughs> we always have an opinion. I don't know if it's always right or not, but right, we do right, like to enough. talk. We like to hear the sound of our own voice. So that's right. Now, you recently wrote a book called Truth Seeker. The Life of Joseph F. Merrill, Scientist, Educator, and Apostle. And I had the opportunity to read it. I loved it. I, just that that time of history. I mean, some people, I mean, like yourself, they geek out over the, you know, the Palmyra days, the Kirtland days. And, you know, yeah, that, there's some remarkable history there. But we sort of learned about it so much that, you know, we maybe it, we don't lean in, at least I speak for myself here. But, but with this history, sort of that 1900s, early 1900s history of apostles and whatnot is really quite fascinating to explore and, and understand because we kind of skip over it to modern day. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I geek out over all phases of history. <laughs> yes, you do. I primarily get to teach early church history, but there really isn't a boring period of church history. That's why I would urge everybody to read Saints Volume 2 and Saints Volume yes. 3. This book kind of aligns with the time period of Saints Volume 3. And we don't always recognize that in the 20th century, the church kind of underwent a reinvention where they were this isolated polygamist <laughs> mountain kingdom that was totally removed from the world. And all of a sudden, the end of plural marriage caused them to move to the mainstream and they had to readapt a lot of things about the way they saw themselves and saw their story. And I think Joseph Merrill was a key figure in how we underwent that adaptation. And now today, you know, as a new century starting, I wonder how we reinvent ourselves again and if this couldn't be yeah. a good guide to what we do. Yeah. And one of my favorite rooms in the conference center, that top floor room, I think it's called like the Room of the Prophets or something. And they have a portrait of 
every apostle in the latter days. And I yes. love walking around yeah. that room and it's like, man, there's so many here. I don't even, they're just a name to me, but to think that they were actually an apostle and, uh, you know, I'm just intrigued by, I'd love to learn their story. And so for you to take Joseph Merrill and, and uh, record his history and, and go back through his journals and whatnot, now that we have that history is, is so awesome. What I love about this conversation is I'd love to go back and talk with some of these these former apostles and just get their, you know, as we do on this podcast, their how I lead story. Like, how did you lead and, and what did you face? What are the obstacles? And so we can't ra- raise them from the dead quite yet. So you'll right. have to, you'll, their biographer will have to do. But uh, maybe just put Joseph Merrill in perspective here for those who are less familiar with him. Okay. Joseph Merrill was an apostle from 1931 to 1952. And he comes from an era where if we think of an apostle from that time, it's usually James Talmadge because he wrote so much good stuff that helped articulate and explain our faith and draw us closer to Christ. Probably the second one you think of from that time is John A. Widso, who also yeah. wrote a lot and was kind of a popular writer and speaker. Merrill's role was not as a writer and speaker per se, though he was pretty good at that, uh, but it was as an innovator. In fact, using the 21st century kind of business speak that we're familiar with, you might say that he was a fan of disruptive innovation, where Mm, he was somebody that that was willing to come along and say, basically, is this working? If it's not working, let's throw it out and let's do something totally different that might send us off in a different direction. But let's don't be scared to change the status quo about the way we're doing things and reorganize ourselves in a way that's more effective. So some of the things he did were really painful for people. For instance, in the early 20th century, uh, the church had a system of its own high schools, the academies that were spread throughout the Intermountain West. But it got to the point to where public high schools, which were free, had surpassed the academies, which were not free. And now we were placing a double burden on members of the church where they were paying tithing and paying for their kids to go to these schools. So Merrill comes along and says, well, why don't we figure out a new configuration that could help both sides? And that was to basically send all our kids to public school, which was free, but set up a theological department in a building next door to the public school that the church could pay for. And you could basically have kids receive almost the same experience they got at an academy, but for a tenth of the cost. All their teachers at their public schools in the Intermountain West were usually Latter-day Saints who were people of faith. But the church was paying for the whole system. Merrill's innovation was to basically say, why don't we just pay for their religious education and let the state take care of the rest instead of trying to replicate what the state is doing and in a sense fight against it. Let's embrace what they're doing and find a way to make it work with our way of life, too. And so a lot of innovations like the seminary system, uh, the institutes of religion, even the way that we approach media, where you know, our impulse is to fight against the, the media environment that we live in. That's as true today as it was a century ago. Maryland yeah. was saying, why don't we embrace this and use it for our own benefit instead of constantly trying to fight against the tide? There are times when it's necessary to fight against the tide. But Merrill was basically looking at everything and saying, when can we embrace change in a way that's helpful? And do we always have to be defensive about new things? Why can't we embrace new things and use them as a way of making things better. Yeah. And I definitely want to spend a lot of time on that during our discussion of, because that that is true leadership. And I, we often frame it here, leading saints as he, positive deviance, right? Like 
he was a deviant. He was re- willing to push the envelope a little bit, but in a positive way because he wanted to see and he and believe, he believed so deeply in in the restored gospel and not. But early on in his life, I love seeing sort of the his faith journey, especially early on. And, and his father, who was also an apostle, was it Mariner? Right, Mariner, Mariner Merrill, yeah. Who I'm, Mariner, I'm, I'm Mariner hoping Merrill. to make a biography of too, because Mariner's oh, a nice. really interesting character. And 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 this the contrast of his, you know, his father's. He had these dynamic visions where Joseph was just trying to get an answer, just a, a peep from heaven, let alone a vision. Yeah, one of the first lessons I learned in studying his life was spirituality works different for different people. Joseph's dad, Mariner, was you know apostle, president of the Logan Temple prolific practitioner of plural marriage, if I can say that. (laughs) And he was this guy who had visions and saw it like one of his earliest recollections, Mariner, is that he saw a vision of himself moving to the Intermountain West and changing his life. There's a story told about him when he was president of the Logan Temple that he looked out the window and saw a guy standing on the lawn. <laughs> this is and so good. Walks down and the guy's Satan. And Satan basically <laughs> says, Yeah, I'm doing everything I can to stop people from coming to this temple. And Mariner just confronts him. And it seems like Mariner's awash in this world of visions and dreams. And then Joseph comes along and he's a He's an empiricist. He's a practical, scientific-minded person who desperately wanted to experience spirituality the way his dad did, but did not. And it seems like that was really frustrating to him in his early life. But what he learned as time went on was that he experienced spirituality different than his dad. And it also was something that he wasn't awash in every day of his life. It came to him at key points when he really needed it. So one Mm -hmm. of the chief stories he tells is that From the time he was eight, he was praying to gain a testimony of the gospel. And he knelt down every night and prayed to know. And he was expecting something like what happened to his dad, a vision or some sort of dramatic experience. And he does this for 10 years with no result. And in fact, the night before he's supposed to go to college at the University of Deseret, later University of Utah, he kneels down and said, I just sort of thought I'm going through the motions here, but I might as well. And it's then, the night before he's going to go to school, that bam, he gets a spiritual manifestation. It's not a dream and it's not a vision. It's this overwhelming feeling that the gospel's true. And he realized that he had desired it earlier, but the time that he needed it was precisely when he was leaving to enter into this really secular world that he needed then to have this spiritual experience happen. So. One of the things I learned was if you don't experience spirituality the same way your mom and dad do, or a brother or sister of the people around you, that's okay. There's no one size fits all. The Lord knows us really well, and he knows when and precisely what to give us. But sometimes it takes real patience and forbearance for us to get what we need at the time when we need it. Yeah. Now, I've really related to his faith journey there that, you know, sometimes we we try and frame spiritual experiences a certain way, or we hear those stories and fast and testimony mean they're just fantastic. But I think, man, I've, I've never had something like that. Or, you know, when I pray, I don't necessarily get an immediate answer or whatnot, but there's sort of just this journey that each individual is on to as far as how they communicate with the divine and how the role they play in their life. And that doesn't mean anybody's doing it wrong or others are doing it right. It's just different for other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the elements are there, but they manifest themselves in different ways. And Joseph's mindset was always kind of this scientific worldview. And I don't know if he would have responded that well to a vision or a dream like his dad did. His dad comes from this more kind of older 
mystical tradition. Mm -hmm. Joseph grows up and receives a ton of education because his dad insists on it. And so the way that the Lord approaches him is a little bit more practical, a little less dramatic, but no less real than anything that his father experienced. It was just personally suited to him and what his approach was. Yeah. And I, and I love those stories of, of somebody who does become a an apostle, right? That, yeah, it was different for them and it wasn't always grandiose or mystical, right? And he was, as far as you can tell, he was the first PhD, first individual to earn a PhD from Utah. Is that right? Yes. He is the first native Utah to nice. get a PhD. Him and John A. Widso, who kind of had a rivalry, they were friends, but they had a rivalry their entire life. Got their PhDs within a couple months of each other. But I oh. think I did verify that Joseph beat John A. Widso by a couple months. Yeah. Actually, him getting his PhD was one of the most interesting parts of the story to me. I wrote this as my master's thesis. And so I was in grad school when I was studying him. Joseph leaves Utah and goes to Johns Hopkins. He goes to the University of Michigan, Johns Hopkins, you know, all these schools back east. And for a while, it, there's this rich, rich collection of letters that he writes to his fiancée, Annie Laura Taylor Hyde, who those names should ring a bell. She's the granddaughter of two apostles, Orson Hyde and John Taylor. And while he's at grad school, they have these conversations back and forth about their faith. Mm, and you yeah, can tell that being one of the only Latter-day Saints in Baltimore and one of, I think, two at Johns Hopkins sort of did wear on his faith. He gets plucked out of not just the home he grew up in, but now the state he grew up in. And he sees all these things that he hasn't seen before. And he's trying to reconcile his spiritual worldview with all the things he's learning from his scientific worldview. And it feels like that coalesces into the great quest of his life, which is to reconcile how you can be a person of reason and also be a person of faith. And that he didn't see the two as incompatible, but it did take him a little while to learn how to make the two work together and not see them as oppositional with each other. Yeah. And I noticed, I think you, you uh, wrote about in, the, in those days, I mean, if you go back east to go to college, it's not like you find the local ward in the area and attend every Sunday. Like for many of those years, he wasn't attending church because there was just no church available, right? Yeah, there was no church to go to. And he talks about how he'd wander around Baltimore and attend church services. He even goes to a spiritualist a seance and basically walks out saying, oh my gosh, that was not from God. <laughs> But his own dad, who's an apostle during this time, his dad's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, was worried he was going to apostatize because there mm -hmm. was no place for him to go to church. And his letters to his fiancée become this kind of lifeline where she is struggling with faith questions. She's a real feminist, and she's trying to figure out the place of women within the church. He's trying to figure out the place of science within the gospel. And the two of them have this beautiful kind of back and forth where, you know, one week she's dragging him back to church and one week he's dragging her back to church. And they have this dynamic relationship where they they reinforce each other and help each other kind of work their way through their own questions. And he comes home. Well, that's the that's the other interesting thing is the second big spiritual experience of his life that he records happens after grad school. So he basically says he's on his way back from grad school and he has decided, you know what, I'm settled in my faith and I'm going to be a member of the church, but I'm not going to be a real flashy member of the church. You know, I'm going to kind of <laughs> sit in the back and do what's expected of me, but I'm not going to take the lead because I think I can do more good for God in the secular world. And he said he was on a train crossing Wyoming on his way back to Utah when, bam, 
the second major spiritual experience of his life hits him, just opens up the newspaper and sees that his friend Richard Lyman has been called as a Sunday school president. And then he feels a very strong impression of voice say, you're going to be his counselor. And it was sort of a rebuke like, and you're going to be involved in the church, buddy. You're not going to sit on the back row and coast. I need you to get to work. And it was such a profound experience that he actually writes up the physiological effects that he feels <laughs> and sends it to a scientific conservatory in Boston to say, what do you make of this? Like, it's the perfect moment that captures his kind of spirituality melded with his scientific method where he's saying, hey, if I could just get enough data, I could probably figure out the metrics of how a spiritual experience works. He wants them to study this. <laughs> But it also demonstrates that even though he didn't totally understand what had happened to him, he got off the train. Richard Lyman's there. He knew immediately what he was going to do. And he kind of put his hand to the plow and didn't look back after that. So yeah. his two major spiritual experiences come at key moments in his life when he starts his education and right when he's ending his education, starting his career to basically say, hey, this is what I need you to do. And then he uses his background in education to sort of bless and help and innovate the church for the rest of his life. Yeah, it's so it's such a fascinating story of just sort of God inviting him into be engaged in the gospel in that way, you know. Yeah. And you mentioned his wife, like they were, I mean, just talk about a match made in heaven. I mean, yeah. they were just perfect for each other. And it's easy to assume like Utah area at that time, like very conservative. And obviously you're much more disconnected from the world than compared to today. So it's almost like you're protected from maybe these more progressive views. And to hear some of the his wife's perspectives that are very feminist, I mean, like 21st century feminists about why women should have the priesthood and things like that. It was I was really surprised that those type of opinions were thrown around back then. Yeah, it's kind of nice to know that those conversations have been happening for a long time, right? Yeah. And they were having those conversations back then. And the truth is they were sort of coming to the same conclusions we come to as well today, which is that, you know, women are key to the gospel, that they're they're not secondary, they're primary, and that the gospel really does empower and open the doors for men and women to serve together. And I think their marriage is also a great demonstration of equal partnership where mm -hmm. I, on their honeymoon, you know, she gives a lecture in the Logan Temple. <laughs> like we don't always think of this, but at the time, the Logan Temple had a, a library and people would go to the assembly hall in the Logan Temple and hear academic lectures. And she very much gives an academic lecture on their honeymoon. And it doesn't seem like he had a problem with this. He wanted her to excel. She wanted him to excel. They saw their their marriage as, as not a competition, but as partnership where they could lift and help each other. And he excels at the University of Utah while she is heading up the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers, one of their youngest presidents ever. And if you look at their social schedule, too, I mean, she was constantly inviting intellectuals and, and interesting figures into their home and organizing meetings where people could kind of learn and hear. And ultimately, I mean, the big innovation that, that Joseph Merrill is tied to, which is the seminary program, is as much her creation as it is his. They sort mm -hmm. of partner together to create that. Yeah, fascinating. And just to, to read about like the different dynamics happening back then, like after Joseph Merrill returns from school, like like nothing's really changed. I mean, there's still the, you know, higher eds, all there. It's too liberal, right? And too progressive that way. Politics was all over the map with, you know, you know, the Democrats and Republicans throwing each other under the bus. Like It's just interesting <laughs> to hear that time that 
really nothing's nothing much has changed. We're just uh, we just speak of it differently, maybe in modern day. But. Yeah, I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? And yeah. there's so many common themes in the early 20th century when the church is going through this radical transformation. That's happening in part because American society is going through a radical transformation that I think about a lot because we're in the same time, right? The church is definitely undergoing major changes, and that's not a bad thing, but it's partially because America's going through, well, America, the world at large, kind of the huge international culture that we exist in is going through changes, but the church is nimble enough, I think, to adapt. We just kind of have to take a hard look at what works and what doesn't work. And keep what works and be willing to change what doesn't work, even if it might sometimes go against tradition and our own affections for the past. Yeah. And Joseph Marilyn is right. They were both Democrats. And even back then, that was sort of, I mean, it maybe wasn't as stigmatized as it is maybe today sometimes in our church culture. But I mean, there were some members who wondered why he was a Democrat or like it was maybe out of the norm, right? It was a little out of the norm. Yeah. There wasn't quite as much of a divide between the two at the time. Mm But yeah, the fact that Joseph was a Democrat and that he was kind of liberal in his views does throw some people off. At the same time, an interesting thing was that the church hierarchy during this time embraced a lot of different types of people. Hmm. Like on the surface, you wouldn't expect that someone like Joseph Fielding Smith, who is very conservative and very sort of traditional when it comes to his theology, could sit next to someone like James E. Talmadge who was a little less conservative and a little less traditional in his theology, and they could get along. And there were conflicts at times, but it seems like the leadership of the church, the people that are choosing the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and I shouldn't say choosing, they're using Revelation to call them, saw that not as a bad thing, that there didn't have to be a sameness among the members of the Quorum of the Twelve or the leaders of the church, that they could have huge differences and embrace them. And that was something that really, really helped the church. I mean, at a time when traditional Christianity is wrestling with things like the Scopes Monkey Trial and reconciling evolution with the Mm -hmm. um, historicity of the scriptures, we have a Quorum of the Twelve that's full of professors from the University of Utah. Talmadge is a geologist, and Joseph Merrill is a physicist, and Richard Lyman's a chemist. And John A. Widsow is an agronomist. And there wasn't any problem with having a smart, scientific-minded person serve as a church leader alongside someone who was a strict scriptural literalist like Joseph Fielding Smith. They worked together and they did sometimes butt heads on certain issues. But it also seems like their work generated a lot of interesting new approaches and ideas that helped particularly younger people stay involved in the church. Yeah. In fact, one statistic I came across on my mission, I was sort of illuminated by this. It was in uh, LeGrand Richards' A Marvelous Work on Wonder. Remember that old oh, yeah. part of the missionary library? Right? Yeah, that's right. One of the things LeGrand Richards bragged about was that at a time when the church was still confined to the Intermountain West, Utah had the highest per capita rate of scientists and people that were getting advanced education. And it seems like this was a period when the church really embraced some of those ideas. And I'm not saying we need to embrace all ideas. Some are better than others, but we don't need to be afraid of new ideas. We don't need to always be on the defensive when something new comes along or see it as negative. We can see it as something that's positive and approach it as positive until we find out if we need to be protective or defensive. Yeah. One thing I saw come up early in his career during those university days. So he 
Uh, Joseph Merritt goes and teaches at the University of Utah in yeah. those early days of that university. And he has many opportunities to lead or, you know, he's considered, I think, uh, at least twice to become the university president. But also he has a promising run to become the governor. And it's interesting because I know that there's individuals in the church who, you know, that they, they have that spirit of Joseph Merrill, the innovator. They think, oh, man, I, we could do things different. We should try this and that. But they're never really given that seat to call the shots. And yeah. it seems like early in his career, he just kept missing out. Like he was, you know, it comes down to two candidates for to run the university and the other guy would get it right. He runs for a governor. And it, let's see, did he get the Democratic nomination? Is that right? No, he doesn't. But he um, just missed it or something, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, he has a lot of setbacks. There's this period from about 1915 to about 1920 where everything in his life goes sideways. He was a rising star in the Democratic Party, but he was basically slapped down because he was affiliated with the university. There were people that said, if he works at the University of Utah, he's a state employee. Therefore, he shouldn't be involved in politics. Mm. And he sort of gets slapped down because of that. Then his uncle was Joseph Kingsbury, the guy Kingsbury Hall is named after. Mm. And he had basically chosen and anointed Joseph to take his place as president of the university. But then Kingsbury gets caught up in this big scandal. And everybody that is associated with Kingsbury is basically shoved to the side without him doing anything. Then maybe the most devastating thing is Laura, his wife, dies of cancer. Mm. And so in the space of two or three, and then his, his son, his son, his oldest son dies as part of the, the pandemic that happens near the end of the First World War. And so in the space of three or four years, basically everything that he is driving towards in his career and his family is sort of yanked away from him. And he has to reorder and reconcile his life. And to me, I mean, it was a big witness that sometimes in your life, you're driving towards something and you think that that's what you're supposed to do. And that's why God put you on the earth. And then all of a sudden you get sent in a totally different direction. And actually, I mean, a lot of what we honor him for and what he was able to do happened after that. So he's not president of the University of Utah, so he gets recruited by the church to be church commissioner of education. Mm -hmm. And when he's there, he doesn't, you know, spend his time lamenting over how his life didn't turn out the way he wanted it to be. He rolls up his sleeves and he goes to work again. Yeah. And he starts to take the principles that he developed to start the seminary program and says, what if there's a way to do this for college students? He's thinking about when he was in grad school and how he had no one to help him reconcile what he was learning in college with what he grew up with in his faith. So he sets up the institute program when he's church commissioner of education with that idea in mind. Let's let's build a place where a Latter-day Saint student can find a trusted adult that can help them understand how what they learned in their biology or their chemistry or their physics class shouldn't destroy their faith. It should strengthen their faith. Yeah. Um, let, let's figure out a way to reconcile these two sides. And he wouldn't have been able to do that if he hadn't had all these setbacks. And it's interesting because when he does become church commissioner of education, he writes a letter to a friend where he says, I really think I've been placed in the best educational position in America. Like <laughs> I thought I was going to be a university yeah. president or a big figure in politics. But actually, this is where the Lord was steering me the whole time. And this is where I can think I think I can make the biggest difference. And honestly, I bet he would have made a great university president or, yeah. or governor or whatever. But the impact of what he did when he was the head of church education is something that a century later, we still are benefited from. It's probably where his talents and gifts would have made the biggest impact when it comes to the kingdom of God and helping people figure out who and what they are. 
Because yeah. I mean, you and I, Kurt, have both had seminary and institute teachers that were really valuable mentors. Huge. Yeah. Uh, Joseph, who lacked those mentors when he was going through his education, created this system where we have bright, articulate women and men who can mentor bright, articulate women and men as they go through their education to recognize that just because you're smart doesn't mean you can't be faithful. And just because you're educated doesn't mean you have to give up the tenets of the gospel. There's a way to make them work with each other. Yeah. And the ideal is to be smart and faithful, to know how the world works, but to also have faith in how God works and trust in his timing and, and his blessings. Yeah, with hindsight, it's so interesting to look back on the story. It's almost like God was saying, you know, Joseph, I don't need you to run the University of Utah. I need you to run church education. So just just relax, you know, just wait. This is a long game. And that relates so much to my life in so many ways where it's like, oh, yeah, this is a long game. Like there's a larger story here that I'm not yeah. seeing that yeah. God, but God is in this. And it's fascinating to see see that journey. Yeah. Sometimes the story we write for our lives doesn't turn out to be the story that God is writing for our lives. And I would say the same things with the people we love the most, too. Like I look at mm -hmm. my kids and think, oh, at this age, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And the stories may be a little bit different than I wrote for them. It's it's them and God together writing their own story. And uh, for Joseph, I mean, everything, including his married life, his professional life, maybe didn't turn out the way that he thought it was going to. But it turned out exactly the way it was supposed to. He just didn't always expect it. In fact, one point I could bring up is, you know, his first wife, Laura, is granddaughter of two apostles. She's church royalty, and she is like 100% in the gospel. Um, his second wife, Millie, was a convert to the church. She got baptized two days before they got married. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, it seems like she got baptized because she was in love with him and he, you know, faith was a huge part of his life. She is not from the church culture. And I found a lot of interesting things in his journal about him struggling to compare her to his first wife. Yeah. Now, she's the one that accompanies him as a mission president that goes with him to Europe. And eventually they have a wonderful, close marriage, but it takes time. And that's maybe not what he expected either, too. You know, he thought that he'd marry this wonderful woman who's the granddaughter of two apostles and they would live their lives together. But he loses her after mm -hmm. 17 years. And he gets into the second marriage that isn't what he expected. And there's some places in his journal where he just makes unflattering comparisons yeah. <laughs> between. And that's so the wonderful like real thing. Real and raw. Him, yeah. Is it's real and it's raw. And I got to see that this guy who seems like he has it all together really had some struggles. But they do overcome that. I mean, he writes some really touching things about her when they're serving as mission presidents in Europe. And then when she passes away, because she passes away too about 12 years before he dies. He writes about, you know, how they grew together to build this second loving union. And I mean, that's another part of our life too, our marriage and our family, where sometimes we've got the script written and we know exactly what our life is going to turn out like. And then we get thrown a couple curveballs and we just have to accept that, no, this doesn't mean that my life has gone off the rails. This means that my life has gone in a different direction, but it might be still headed towards the place where the Lord wants me to end up. Yeah. Yeah, Millie's a fascinating character as well that she gets a few baptisms by fire, not only joins the church, but is now suddenly this this housewife with a family to take care of because yeah. uh, Joseph has to work. And that back then, I mean, that's just, you know, she needed to care for the home, right? Yeah, stepmom to five kids. She goes from being a single lady in a professional career to being a stepmom taking care of kids, married to a fairly prominent church figure. He wasn't an apostle when they got right. married. 
But then she goes from being married to a nice guy who's really involved with his church to someone who's 24-7 church and then becomes an apostle. And you got to imagine that for her, who all reminiscences say she was a very shy and and sort of resigning person to being a mission president's wife. Like now she's center stage. And it seems like she had a little discomfort kind of fitting the expectations that are there. And I think about my own wife where I was serving as a bishop and, you know, I said, let's go to this movie. And she goes, can't we go to a movie, you know, a little further away from home? (laughs) And I said, how come? She goes, I just don't know if I want to run into somebody from our ward. And I go, what do you mean? And she goes, you have to understand that the only person they have higher expectations for than you is me. Like we make all these jokes about Uh how, you know, when we call a bishop, we find the most righteous Christ-like person in the ward, and then we call her husband or something like that. But my wife sort of chafed. She's sort of a a more shy, conservative person. And she sort of chafed with the idea that she wasn't called as the bishop, but for some reason, the expectations of her were higher than they were for me. Hmm. And it was the same thing with Joseph's second wife, where she wasn't called as a mission president, she felt. But all of a sudden, she's placed in this world of expectations and expected to just sort of go with it. And she does really grow into it. But that could be a challenge too, is sometimes your life is sent off in a different direction, not because you chose it, but because of what happens to someone you love. And that was an interesting facet of of life for me to explore too. Yeah. So let's talk about him being, I mean, he is the founding father of the seminary and institute programs. And you look at those programs today and I mean, they are it's an institution, right? Like it's just as common and resilient as you think like the temple program, family history, the priesthood. I mean, it's just a part of our tradition. Mm-hmm. But early on, I was just so amazed at the the hurdles, the resistance, the the pushing that this took to get it going. Where should we start with uh, unpacking just the beginnings of seminary and institute? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, there was resistance because it was a new idea. And I mean, you've heard that phrase that, you know, Radical ideas discouraged by institutions eventually become institutions that discourage radical ideas, right? (laughs) The institution that he's contending with is the way that they'd done church education for 20 or 30 years before, which was in 1888, President Woodruff said, hey, we've got to make sure our kids are educated. So let's set up an academy system, which was a church academy could be everything from A high school that was run by the church to a boarding school like Hogwarts, you know, where your kids would leave (laughs) during the winter and go to school and then come home. But by the time Joseph Merrill comes along, they're fairly established. The problem is, is that they were being sort of made obsolete by the establishment of public education. Church academies were established when there wasn't a public high school in every community. But in the 1890s, the United States starts to provide free public education. And it becomes really, really hard for a church academy that that thrives based on tuition to compete with a free public high school. And so by about, I mean, there's actually a chart in Milt Benyon's book on Mormon education where enrollment at church academies peaked the same year that the seminary program was launched. Hmm. So on the surface, it seems like the academies are doing great. But the year after they start to decline and he overlays enrollment in public high schools and the year that the academies peak is right when public high schools start to ascend. So we knew that the academies, just because of the difficulty we had in getting them to everybody, not every community had an academy, not every community had the means to create one. 
they were going to go away. But it was hard to see at the time the seminary program was launched. Joseph Merrill comes along and his kids don't have an academy to go to. They're in the Granite School District. They have to go to Granite High School because there's not an academy that they can attend. There's LDS Academy, which is downtown Salt Lake, but that was a little far for them to travel. Uh, So he comes up with this idea of what if we just build a building next to the public high school and we teach religion there? So let's release them from school one hour a day. We think he actually got this idea from the Vesper services he attended while he was in graduate school, Hmm. where at Vesper services, they set up a little spiritual service for college students and you'd leave your college education and go and hear a spiritual leader talk to you. So Joseph says, let's build a building next door to the next door to the high school. Let's hire a really smart person who has a ton of faith. The guy they hire is Thomas Yates, who I I tracked down his family to. Thomas Yates is an engineer, Cornell grad. He's building the power plant in Murray. He's a man of science uh, who only teaches two classes, but he agrees to it. And the two of them work out this curriculum. What's the curriculum going to be? Well, we're going to focus on the scriptures. But we're also going to introduce academic ideas into how to approach the scriptures. We're going to not just sort of quote scripture at them. We're going to teach them how to use the scriptures. And I mean, it turns into this wonderful, first of all, it's really pragmatic because they do a cost analysis benefit in the 1920s and it costs about 10% as much to educate a seminary student as it does to educate an academy student. Hmm. Second, it allows them to work with the state government instead of fighting against it by having their own system. And third, it sets up this wonderful program of mentorship where there becomes this great tradition of find a smart person in your ward who loves the gospel and loves the scriptures and can relate to young people. And let's turn them into their spiritual mentor. Because when it comes down to it, I mean, I can't remember a lot that I learned about the scriptures in seminary, but I could name all my seminary teachers. Yeah. And actually, the most important interaction I had with a seminary teacher didn't happen in a classroom, happened at a ball game. Wow. Uh, where I, I saw him there with his, his wife and kids, and he came over and talked to me for a long time and just genuinely showed interest <clears throat> to the point to where mm-hmm. I thought, this guy cares about me. And that act of caring, which didn't even take place in the classroom, was a major factor in my formative spiritual development. Uh, the seminary program was designed to just take these great mentors, these women and men who love the gospel, and turn them into spiritual mentors. And sometimes the mentoring is maybe even more important than the learning, than the curriculum. It's just seeing somebody that isn't perfect, but strives to live the gospel and is intelligent and educated really helps our young people see that they can do the same thing too. Yeah. So when the seminary program gets going, and I'm just shocked by the the political pushback he got, there's this one character, I forget his name, that was almost determined to not let the seminary program move forward, that that there's all this debate about whether we're mixing church and state too much. And you think, what's the problem with students leaving high school, yeah. going to a different building and just learning about church stuff? But there were, there was just such resistance in this on, on the political level as well. There was pushbacks from a lot of direction. Part of it was political, is uh, <laughs> release time seminary program mixing church and state. Part of it came from the church. In fact, one person who really struggled with the seminaries was David O. McCain. Hmm. David O. McKay was principal of a church academy, and David O. McKay's view was you can't separate the spiritual and the secular. They're the same thing. And he does have kind of a point, right? I mean, maybe the ideal would be to have a church academy everywhere, but the practical approach is you have a spiritual mentor that reconciles the secular and the spiritual together. But David O. McKay at first felt like 
that Brigham Young teaching that you shouldn't even teach the mathematics tables without the Spirit of God meant that the seminary program was trying to put spiritual over here and put secular learning over here, and he felt they were better blended together. And that is a a totally valid objection to raise. But there was also this pragmatic approach of, hey, should we duplicate what other people can do for us? Or is this a render under Caesar and render unto God, the kind of things? I think that the system does work well together. However, I'm at BYU, <laughs> where yeah. one of the great things I loved about BYU was that my geology teacher could bear his testimony in class. That might be the ideal, but accepting that the church might not have the resources to create a BYU in every community throughout the world, the next best thing is to have a seminary or an institute there where a person can go and receive spiritual training and teaching, and not just spiritual teaching, but reconciliation of the secular truths they're learning with the spiritual truths of the gospel. Yeah. And I appreciate like the different forces, even within the church, like you mentioned David O. McKay, where as church commissioner of church education, right? He's being pulled by these internal forces. Like, you know, he, David O. McKay thinks one way, but others are kind of pulling him one, one way. And, and I think a lot of leaders could relate to that dynamic yeah. as even in the church, right? Yeah, you've got David O. McKay, who's very much a, a you know spiritual educator. I don't care about the practical costs. Let's just do what's best. And then on the other hand, the other person pulling him is Heber J. Grant, who Heber J. Grant is a business practical cost yep. benefit analysis guy. <laughs> and Heber J. Grant is constantly saying, how do we manage the finances of this church and do this? So, you know, David O. McKay, it seems like throughout his prophetic career, did not care about the cost. Let's just do what's best. Uh, then there's other leaders of the church like Heber J. Grant that are pragmatic saying, yeah, well, we can't help anybody if the church goes bankrupt. And he's pulled in these two directions, trying to find a way to compromise the two of, can we do what David O. McKay wants to do, which is really just make sure people get a world-class spiritual education and what Heber J. Grant wants to do, which is, can we make sure that the church works on a practical level without going bankrupt? And the Seminary Institute program was a was a meeting of the ways between the two. It was a lot less expensive than the church academy. So actually, they close all the church academies or transfer them to the state. A lot of people don't know this, but if you live in Utah or Idaho, your local high school might have been a church academy. Hmm. You got transferred to the state. Or there's a number of schools in Utah like Snow, Weber, and Dixie that were church academies that got turned into church junior colleges, but then eventually got turned over to the state too in favor of institute programs. So, I mean, sometimes the the solution is the middle road between the two extremes. But I think he very much knew what it was like to have people over him that had different directions and goals and try to navigate the way between the two. And that's actually one skill that he really had was he didn't say, David O. McKay, you're wrong. We're going to do it this way. Or Heber J. Grant, you're wrong. He said, okay, I've got input from both of you. Let's see if we can find a way to help everybody achieve what they want to achieve. You might not get everything that you want, mm -hmm. but we'll get most of what you want and we'll find a way that works for everybody. He was a great, great compromiser when it came with that. And I have a friend of mine who says there's three types of people. He says there's people that say, you know, let's get it done. That's Heber J. Grant. There's people <laughs> that's let's do it right. That's David O. McKay. Then there's people that say, let's all get along. I think Joseph Merrill was a let's all get along, but he also recognized let's get it done and let's do it right. People could be accommodated as well. Yeah. And from a leadership perspective, just 
looking at that journey that he and the church went through of establishing the seminary institute programs, like I sort of imagine all of us were on the other side of the veil, like cheering them on, like we will need this in the 1990s and the 2000s, like keep going. Right. But sometimes in leadership, it can feel like you have this dynamic vision, but everything you do, they're just met with resistance and even friendly fire, right. Of, of people who should be on board that, that aren't. And you can get discouraged and think, well, maybe we're just not supposed to do this, but to realize not like, just keep pushing, you know, follow that inspiration and something remarkable will come from it that blesses millions of lives. Yeah. I mean, if you're like me, Kurt, you probably felt like every phase of your life, you weren't crushing it. You were surviving. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, I look back on my time in ecclesiastical leadership and think, oh my gosh, every day I wasn't thinking about 50 years down the road, I didn't have a grand vision. I was thinking about the next 24 hours and how to survive. Mm -hmm. But you add up enough of those 24 hours, and sometimes you get the perspective to look back and say, we did do something really great. You know, we held to our vision. We made little changes along the way as things came up. But what we achieved is really extraordinary. But it's really hard for us to see that when we're in the midst of the complexity. Sometimes it takes a little, I mean, and Joseph Merrill doesn't even write positively about the seminary program until the thirties. <laughs> then wow. he writes a big article because now it's an institution and he writes an article for the improvement era where he says, we sometimes build better than we know, hmm. which to me was really profound because man, feeling like I'm just surviving one crisis after another, I have to pull back every now and then and say, you know what? We're doing something pretty great here. And it's easy to get caught up in the little tiny complexities of life and miss the big picture of what we're doing, what the grand vision is. I saw that in him, but he was fortunate to live long enough to kind of start to see. And he even recruits, I mean, the second seminary teacher was a guy named Abel Rich, who right before he retires, recruits and trains a guy named Boyd K. Packer. (laughs) And uh, Boyd K. Packer, near the end of his life, said that the Seminary Institute program were created for the salvation of Israel in a very, very key time. But I don't think the people that were on the ground quite realized that. They were just trying to do what was right. I mean, to borrow from Frozen 2, you do the next right thing. (laughs) Uh, I would just add uh, that a bunch of little right things eventually does add up to something really grand and profound. Just challenging to see it when we're in the middle of it. It's inspiring for sure. So he's... uh church commissioner of education, and he gets called as an apostle during this time and even serves for a few more years as while as an apostle as over yeah, church yeah. education. He was, he was the first, he served in the two positions concurrently. Mm-hmm. And that was actually something that we've gone back and forth to is should the church commissioner of education just be an educator or should they be a church leader? We've gone back and forth with it, but we finally did settle. Uh, Henry B. Eyring, who was church commissioner of education, has been longer than anybody else in the history mm-hmm. of the church he was the one that finally just established that, that the head of church education needs to be a general authority as well. They need to have both ecclesiastical and, and I guess you would say organizational authority to do what they do. And it makes sense because in a lot of ways, education is to us a spiritual activity. Like I I tell my students, you might not think when you're doing your readings or taking an exam that it's spiritual, but you know, the parameters the Lord set up in the Doctrine and Covenants, the glory of God is intelligence, that the Kirtland Temple, you know, was just as much a house of learning as it was a house of worship. 
that I, I see the buildings I'm in and I'm in the religion building on BYU campus, but I also see the mathematics, the science and all other buildings as temples, you know, temples in the Kirtland temple sense where we go in and participate in a consecrated activity, which is to learn and to grow that that is a spiritual activity for a Latter-day Saint and for yeah. everybody else too. I hope. So during that time, it wasn't uncommon for an, an apostle to be called as a mission president, which happens to the Joseph Merrill, and he gets yeah. called over to Europe. And it seemed like I couldn't quite understand the dynamic. Was he like a mission president over other mission presidents as well in the European area, or how did that work? Yeah, so the modern way of looking at it would be that he was more like a sort of area authority. Yeah. There was the European mission, and he's the European mission president, which is based in London. But there's mission presidents that are in the Netherlands and in Switzerland and in Italy and in France and so on and so forth. And he was the presiding authority over them. So the way it was structured back then was that the European mission president acted the same way an area presidency would today. Mm, gotcha. And then there were mission presidents that served under his direction uh, that headed that way too. But I mean, being called as a the European mission president was a, <laughs> it was a tough job. Yeah, And he followed some big names. I mean, James E. Talmadge, John A. Widso, Richard Lyman. Richard Lyman's the one who's in right before him. And it was, it was demanding. You were traveling a lot. You were supervising a lot of people. And it was at a time when the situation in Europe was really complex because of anti-Mormonism and pushback against the saints, but also because we're right in the lead up to the Second World War. I mean, he's called this mission president in 1933, and he has to basically preside over church members who are sitting on top of this powder keg that's waiting to go off and will mm -hmm. go off in the 1940s. So it's a really complex time, but he manages it with flying colors and, and again, is manages to innovate in a couple of ways that we still utilize today. Yeah. It would be safe to say that we Without Joseph Merrill, we would not know the name Gordon B. Hinckley. I think Gordon B. Hinckley was extraordinary. Probably would have turned out okay no matter <laughs> Right, right. But it seems but, like Joseph Merrill like set him on that track. Right? Yeah, yeah. But this <clears throat> idea of innovation that President Hinckley was my prophet growing up and I loved him for this. Mm -hmm. It seems like that idea of let's innovate. He passes on to Gordon B. Hinckley. So Gordon B. Hinckley is a missionary in his mission. And early on, I mean, the story we always tell about Gordon B. Hinckley is about how he got there and he didn't want to stay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and his dad tells him, forget yourself and go to work. Mm -hmm. Well, almost immediately after that, Gordon B. Hinckley, who's a little bit older than the rest of the missionaries, he waits a while to go, is called into the mission office and spends almost all of his mission uh, as the office elder, the assistant to the president working with Joseph Merrill. And Joseph Merrill does when he gets to Europe what he's done everywhere else. He sits down and says, instead of just doing what we've always been doing, which is you know, we've been putting down a soapbox in Hyde Park and getting up and preaching. And he starts taking that system apart and saying, do we have to do it this way? And is this way even effective anymore? So there's all kinds of letters between Joseph Merrill and the church hierarchy where he's saying, why aren't we using new media? People go to movies. Why don't we start making movies? People listen to radio. I mean, if Joseph Merrill was around today, he'd be talking to the church hierarchy saying, we need more YouTube and podcasts and why don't we have a TikTok channel or something like that? He was really <laughs> interested in embracing new ideas. And he sort of, you know, brings in Gordon B. Hinckley and says, hey, kid, figure this out. So when Gordon B. Hinckley leaves his mission, and this is a part of his biography that maybe some people know, 
he's sent by Joseph Merrill to meet with the first presidency. And Joseph Merrill says, hey, I think you'd make a great seminary teacher. And so Gordon Mahinkley meets with the first presidency, says all this stuff about new media and new approaches to media, and then goes off to be a seminary teacher. But he gets a call from the first presidency where they say, we liked what you said. It's kind of a, hey, kid, we like the cut of your jib. We want you to come back and manage this for us. And so Gordon B. Hinckley in the 1930s becomes the church's media specialist. You know, he's the person that introduces radio, new innovations. He's the person that comes up with the idea that in the temple, we should be using a movie instead of a live endowment, which now is standard practice. Throughout. There's not a temple in the church where yeah. we don't use a movie because it's so much easier when it comes to translation, when it comes to the number of people that have to be involved and everything like that. Joseph Merrill mentored him in that. And they create this new kind of media approach, which I would argue was there from Joseph Smith on. I mean, Joseph Smith said, let's use a printing press, right? Let's, let's set up a church magazine or church newspaper. That's new technology. I think Joseph Smith, Joseph Merrill, and Gordon B. Hinckley would be the kind of people saying, hey, why aren't we using Slack to communicate as a bishopric? Or, hey, why don't we use Trello? When I was a bishop, we used Trello to set up our yeah. bishopric agendas. When I first got there, I was still dealing with the whole, the executive secretary prints out the agenda. And we all have a paper in our hands. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when we started using Trello, which is sort of a an electronic agenda organizer. Right? Yeah, we had mm -hmm. people changing the minutes, changing the, the meeting five minutes before by throwing stuff on Trello. That mm -hmm. worked really well for us. And I was grateful. And, and I tried to surround myself with people that were always sort of trying to think outside the box and say, hey, what if we use this? What if we do this? What if we uh, text the young men, you know, every night over group me and just give them a little spiritual thought or something like that? That approach, I think, that Joseph Merrill passes on to President Hinckley stays alive and well in the church. And I will say, in my position, I get to deal with a lot of churches. I'm super proud of the church's innovative approach, where they seem like when a new technology comes along, rather than being totally afraid of it and saying, no, that's not how we do things, we embrace it and say, what can we do? How can this serve us? And there might be some technologies that we discard because they're just not good. Uh, there can be dead ends, but we aren't afraid of what's going on. We're, we're seeing it not as a challenge, but as a gift from the Savior to help us reach more people and do more good. Yeah. And I just love that leadership principle that Joseph Merrill, you know, demonstrates so well is just because there's like this pull between like, you want to be, you know, follow inspiration, be innovative, be a disruptor to some degree, a positive deviant, but also you want to be obedient, right? Like, well, you know, the handbook doesn't say that we doesn't say we could, can or can't do that. So maybe we just shouldn't do it, right? But to sort of push and say, what could we do with this? What are the possibilities? And just to know that you have permission to try some things. And a lot of times in leaders, in leadership, it's like, you know, maybe ask forgiveness before permission, you know, just like <laughs> try it and go for it. And maybe there's, and because so much of our tradition has come from these grassroots ideas, like the primary Sunday school and even, yeah. you know, Joseph Merrill's ideas and whatnot that, has really dramatically improved the church in general. That, that, that's one thing I actually wanted to get across in the book is when Joseph Merrill came up with the seminary program, he was a counselor in a stake presidency. Mm. He wasn't in the Quorum of the Twelve or the mm. First Presidency. And sometimes we have this model where any change and in innovation in the church comes top down. You know, it's a revelation given to the prophet that filters its way down to the people. And that is how it comes. 
uh, sometimes. But revelation happens at all levels. And a lot of things like the seminary program, the family history program, the family home evening program were things that started as grassroots innovations that started on the local level that the the general leadership of the church saw. And instead of saying, hey, stop doing things differently than the way we told you to, they said, holy cow, this is great. This is a wonderful innovation we should introduce to the entire church and bring along. And that push and pull. I mean, I just really believe that revelation comes at all levels of church yeah, leadership. Absolutely. And absolutely 100% do I believe the prophet gets revelation. And he's probably the most important revelator in the church. But a primary president gets revelation. A Relief Society president, a young men's advisor can come up with ideas that change and shape things. And sometimes these grassroots ideas are adopted by the entire church and change the paradigm as well. And so, I mean, I know that one of the real appeals of the church is the steadiness, the consistency. But I love how our church also embraces this idea of constant change too. Mm -hmm. That the truths of the gospel don't change, but is there a new way to talk about this? Yeah. Or is there a new way to get this done that's going to be a little bit more efficient? And I got to praise President Nilsson for coming along and, you know, killing a couple of our sacred cows. <laughs> Where we're like, you know, home teaching is sort of creaking along, but it doesn't really work that great. Okay, let's do something else. Yeah, um, let's rethink it. Yeah. 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 And is there a reason why women can't be witnesses when we perform uh, baptisms? We did that in the early church. It's just something that we uh, stopped doing along the way. Is there any reason to not do it? Okay, let's let's do it again. And he's been so great to basically, instead of saying, we've got to preserve the status quo, to look at it and say, is it worth preserving? If it is, let's preserve it. Let's fight with yeah. everything we have to. But if it isn't, and it's something we can change, and the change would be better, let's try it out. Maybe we'll yeah. crash and burn, but let's do something different and see if we get a better result. Yeah. And I really appreciated some of those entries there, or the communications between Joseph Merrill and Gordon B. Hinckley of, because sometimes me, I, it's easy, you know, I'm, I'm a weak mortal and I'll get cynical about, you know, how things are going and, you know, in the church or this program or that program. But to hear sort of Joseph Merrill, you know, articulate some frustration with the church of like, man, why don't they just do something different? Like this isn't working, right? Like, and again, he wasn't, you know, he was just, I, I appreciate that human side that came yeah. out in, in some of Joseph Merrill's you know, recordings. That's the nice thing is because he's sort of a more obscure apostle. Yeah. There wasn't a great, and his family also, I've got to credit his family. They donated his papers to BYU with no restrictions. And so wow. having access to an apostle's inner thoughts like this is really rare. And one of the things that actually I think blessed me the most was to see frustrations, to see that, you know, not everything was perfect in his mind. You know, there was even times near the end of his life when he's frustrated with himself. Like one of the innovations he suggested was, why don't you guys retire me? You know, I'm so old. <laughs> I don't know if I'm effective anymore. Am I being here the most effective thing? And I totally understand the reason why apostolic succession is set up the way it is. But there was no sacred cow to him. You know, there was yeah. no system, even the system of how apostles serve to the end of their life that he wasn't looking at. I mean, yeah. some of the last writings of his life was him saying, I'm older and I don't know if I'm as effective. So maybe I shouldn't be in this position. And the leaders of the church were assuring him, you're still really effective. You're too mm -hmm. hard on yourself. Yeah. Uh, and there's a reason why apostles serve for life. Uh, some of the most important lessons we learn from them are to age gracefully and to embrace our mortality rather than fighting against it. And actually, it's one of the last lessons I learned from studying him was, was how gracefully he sort of 
came to embrace and accept who he was and finally just become comfortable because see, he spends his whole life looking for solutions, right? Biggest problem that everybody wants to find a solution to is mortality. And when his wife got sick with cancer, he loses her and he writes all these things in his journal later on where he says, if I just understood the word of wisdom better or the mm -hmm. principles of health, he's mixing science and religion here. I could have saved her. Then he, he loses his second wife. Millie is just gone. She just has a heart attack and he comes home and finds her. At the end of his life, the third woman who's really, really critical is his daughter, Laura. She's named after his first wife, very much looks and acts like her. And she comes to live with him. She's single to take care of him. And she gets cancer, same type of cancer her mom got. And this is him saying, this is my chance. You know what? I can do all the things that I should have done with her mother and I will save her. So he emphasizes the word of wisdom, even to, you know, don't eat meat or eat meat sparingly. Mm -hmm. Puts her on these juice diets, you know, implements the latest and greatest scientific innovations. And he still loses her. And it seems like the last big lesson he has to learn is there are some things beyond your control that reason can only affect so many things. That's why faith is so vital to us because there, we try to help with everything that we can, but there's some things that you just place into God's hands and him reconciling the death of the third most important woman in his life, his daughter is him kind of coming to the last lesson he needs to learn, which is you can do a lot of good and you can change a lot of things by being innovative and smart and adaptable. But then there also is the time when you accept where you're at and what you've been given and you find peace with it. And I really do think that, you know, he, he dies four years after his daughter. I think he was at peace when he died. He had had his, his rough edges kind of sanded off by the challenges that he faced. Yeah, really just sad to see all the close women in his life that, that suffered that way. And, and I appreciate that as part of his mortality of like, I just, maybe I can fix it through the gospel, right? I think we've all been there. I just want to, I'll give her the blessing and then it'll go away or we'll, we'll double down on, triple down on the word of wisdom and then it'll, then she'll be fine. But it's in God's hands, right? And yeah. We all run that. into that, uh, yeah. that dichotomy of if I'm just faithful enough, this will work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't. And yeah. sometimes because it's not supposed to work the way you thought it was. And sometimes it's because you need to learn a profound lesson, which is just God's in control. And he allows us to use our talents and gifts, but there's some things we're meant to learn in this life. And one of them is faith is the first principle of the gospel. That used to seem so obvious to me. I used to sit there and go, duh, of course, faith is the first principle. You have to believe God exists. But now I'm coming to realize that faith is the first principle of the gospel because there's so many things beyond our control that we're really, really going to set ourselves up for frustration and failure. If at a certain point we can't just go, I'm going to trust the Lord on this one. I feel like I've done everything that I can. And I know that he's in, he's in control and he's working the problem the same time as me. I trust him that, that he's going to lead to the right outcome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I got to squeeze this in here, but before we wrap up, the Richard Lyman story is so fascinating to me. And I've, I've read different accounts of it in different biographies and whatnot. Even I think it was a uh, Spencer W. Kimball's biography where he's a young apostle and here he is in this <laughs> meeting with the quorum of the 12 and one of them is being excommunicated and it's Richard Lyman. Right. And yeah, so but, break well, it down me, for us. 
let me correct you there. Spencer W. Okay. Kimball replaced Richard Lyman. So oh, he okay. wasn't there. And for those that don't know, Richard Lyman is a name a lot of people might not know because he's the last pres- he, he's the last member of the Quorum of the Twelve to be excommunicated mm-hmm. uh, from the church in our dispensation. Now, some backstory here. Richard Lyman is a huge, like six foot five, big, powerfully built, dynamic, athletic guy. And it seems like he and Joseph Merrill always have this big brother, little brother relationship through their entire life. Mm-hmm. They're both sons of apostles. Richard Lyman's the son of Francis M. Lyman, Joseph Merrill's son of Mariner Merrill. They meet in graduate school at the University of Michigan, become really good friends. And then their lives kind of parallel each other. When Joseph Merrill has his second spiritual experience, it's because Richard Lyman is going to mm-hmm. call him as a counselor in a Sunday school presidency. Then they become professors at the University of Utah. They have offices right next to each other. Lyman is a chemist. Merrill's a physicist. They walk to work together every day. Now, Lyman becomes an apostle before Joseph Merrill. When Joseph Merrill becomes an apostle, Lyman writes his introduction to the church. In, in the in improvement era, when a new apostle was called, they'd ask another apostle to write their bio. And Richard Lyman writes it. Uh, Richard Lyman is the mission president in Europe before Joseph Merrill is. And it's clear that in Joseph Merrill's private writings, there was this, he's my big brother. He's the person that I strive towards. He was always a little bit more outgoing and dynamic and maybe showy than Joseph Merrill was. Well, one day in 1943, and you can find this in Joseph Merrill's journal, he shows up at the Quorum of the Twelve Meetings, Salt Lake Temple. Uh, J. Ruben Clark ushers them in, says, come in, we've got something really serious we've got to deal with. And so everybody sits down and Clark basically announces, hey, Richard Lyman has been found to be committing adultery and we need to talk about what we're going to do about this. And so uh, this, the backstory is, is that uh, Richard Lyman is married to Amy Lyman, who at the time was the General Relief Society. Yeah, like, can you imagine what a scandal this would be? Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Today. And, and he feels like they're in kind of a loveless marriage. And so Richard Lyman, I think in his mind, didn't see it as adultery. He saw it as polygamy. Yeah. Uh, he saw this other woman as his, his wife, and he was engaged in an affair with her. But none of this took place with the sanction of the leadership of the church. Richard Lyman just went through these mental gymnastics to try and justify what he was doing. Well, finally, it catches up with him. And in the course of that meeting, Richard Lyman's excommunicated. And uh, Spencer W. Kimball's called to take his place. <laughs> the story Spencer W. Kimball tells is Richard Lyman was such a popular Mormon apostle. Spencer T- Kimball is sent to a state conference. The first state conference he speaks at is an apostle. And they actually announce Richard Lyman instead of Spencer W. Kimball. Oh, my Kimble. goodness. <laughs> and Spencer W. Kimball kind of has to get up and go, I'm not Richard Lyman. As you know, Elder Lyman was excommunicated. Uh, sorry, he's not here, but I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> and then he just goes ahead. Well, um, uh, Merrill, Joseph Merrill was devastated by this. Like he usually in his journal would record the temperature of the day and maybe wonder, here's what I had for dinner. He writes pages and pages about Richard Lyman's excommunication and wow. how, how tough it was for him. But as I read on in Elder Merrill's journal too, I noticed a, a unique pattern. Every couple of weeks, there'd be a Richard Lyman came to my house and had dinner today. Or I went to a football game with Richard Lyman or... Richard Lyman and I went for a drive. Richard Lyman and I, you know, spent the afternoon talking about his situation. And I got to say, 
I hate the word excommunication, and I'm glad that they changed it in the 2020 mm-hmm. handbook. We don't say excommunication anymore. Right. We say removal of church membership because excommunication sounds like you are shunned. We're, we're right. not going to have anything to do with it. We are excommunicating with you, the opposite of communicating. Uh-huh. We don't want anything to do with you. But it seems like Joseph Merrill, at least, and I would argue the other members of the quorum as well, did the exact opposite. They embraced this guy. They saw the damage that had happened to him and his family, and they they reached out to heal. And the part of the story that we don't always bring up is that Richard Lyman is rebaptized. He's rebaptized two years after Joseph Merrill passes away. Oh wow. But he does die married to Amy Lyman and in full fellowship in the faith. He's not an apostle, but he's an active participant in the faith in full fellowship when he passes away. And that was another thing was we don't always get to see the compassion behind the scenes right? Uh, that happens. Like there's this whole set of letters he got as an apostle. And one of them was this uh, missionary who basically, the missionary had a girl who was waiting for him at home. And the girl had broken the law of chastity with somebody else. And at first she'd lied to the missionary and said, no, nothing happened. And then the girl actually got her act together and went on a mission too. When she was on her mission, she felt like she needed to come clean. So she wrote to her missionary and said, yeah, I did break the law of chastity, but I'm, I've gone through the repentance process. So this missionary writes to Elder Merrill and basically explains this whole story and says, how can I ever forgive her? Like, this is such a betrayal. How can I possibly love her or even have anything to do with her because she betrayed me? And Elder Merrill writes this letter back where he sort of tenderly but directly says, can you really be out there teaching about the atonement all day and not think that it applies to this person that you love? Like, like mm-hmm. you've sort of missed the point of your whole mission, which is you're teaching people that forgiveness and reconciliation is possible, but you can't see how that's possible for somebody that you care about. Uh, you're so close to her and you're so hurt personally that you can't see that the Savior really can heal and fix something like that. And I actually tried to track down the missionary and his, his um, girlfriend or whatever. I couldn't mm-hmm. find him. I don't mm-hmm. know how the story resolved itself, but that's another story that I often tell in class where sometimes it's really difficult for us to apply the teachings of the gospel to the people we personally relate to. Like it's easier for me to be kind and compassionate to a student that I barely know than to my own wife or my daughter, because, you know, I'm so close to them. I have such high expectations for them. He wasn't that way. You know, he saw the atonement as something that we needed to apply to everybody, even the people closest to us. Yeah. Fascinating. I love just that the friendship just continued and, and love and support there. And, and, you know, the, the messiness of life, but that it can be healed uh, through the atonement of Jesus Christ is so encouraging. It's messy. And the story's not as cut and dry as you want it to be, but it's yeah. also more beautiful because of the messiness. Like yep. rather than call it messiness, the term I usually use in class is complexity. Yeah. And I'll tell students, you know, if you're studying church history and you find out that Joseph Smith chewed a guy out, that's not messy. That's complexity. Yeah. It means that you're dealing with a real person and not a kind of polished figure where every rough edge has been taken away. It's the difference between experiencing something that's real and something that's manufactured. And real things, as, as, as I continue in my life, are the thing that I sort of seek. Like, it's, it's cool to go see a Marvel movie, right? And I love Marvel movies as much <laughs> as the next guy. 
but everything you see up there is manufactured and curated and focus tested yeah. uh, to the nth degree to please you. It's another thing to go to a sacrament meeting and have somebody get up and say, my talk today is on repentance. The dictionary defines repentance. It's not great, right? Uh-huh, <laughs> it's not <right>. perfect. <laughs> it's not manufactured and cultivated. And maybe, you know, there's been times when I thought, hey, why don't we just have this guy speak every sacrament meeting? He's awesome. But there's a realness that's there. When you get past the whole, the dictionary defines, and you hear a person starting to talk about their story. We just had state conference and this lady got up and started out with the dictionary defines, but then started telling about how she'd lost her 16 year old son. Mm. And she wasn't the most dynamic speaker or the most articulate. She stumbled and she struggled. There were a lot of ums and ahs, but there was a realness there that I really connected with that I just don't get from a more manufactured experience. And one of the things I think I've learned in my classes and as an ecclesiastical leader was that realness, that awkwardness that sometimes exists in church settings can be an asset because it shows that it's not a 100% manufactured thing. It's something that's organic and real. And that, that resonates with me more than a really polished sermon. And I love a polished sermon as much as the next guy. It's just a sincere testimony in my mind carries a lot more weight. You know that old Brigham Young story where he talks about how a man without eloquence converted him? He, oh, he yeah, gives yeah. this wonderful quote where he says, I'd listened to all these preachers that knew exactly what they were doing, that had theological training. But when a man without eloquence laid down the basic tenets of the gospel and I could see that he was sincere, he lit my soul on fire. It was the sincerity uh, that converted him. And in studying history, for me, that sincerity is a strength not a weakness. The messiness of our history makes it genuine history, not manufactured history where everybody's perfect. I really, really like that. And that's one of the reasons why I love Joseph Merrill is his life was messy, but it was a real life. And when I wrote the book, I didn't want to present a sort of heroic figure that never did anything wrong. I wanted someone that I could relate to. And in that way, he really became kind of my mentor where I had days where I thought, this guy felt like he took his wife for granted. Am I taking my wife for granted? You know, am I appreciating what I have? What would happen to me if I was in the same situation as him? I just really, really am grateful that I felt like I was mentored by an apostle through my entire graduate education. And now I, I'm hoping that his story does the same for other people. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. Remember, solve the burden of meetings by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14 and getting 14 days access to the Meetings with Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us.
by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.